Uh, This is probably going to be a slightly different Palm Sunday sermon, and that's only because I've been chewing on this particular passage uh, for several, several weeks at this time. So much so that I just, I had to get all of this down and and get it out to you. (laughs) I find Amos a really fascinating Old Testament prophet. He's amongst those at the end of the Old Testament that we sometimes call minor prophets. And that's not because their message is a minor message. It's, It's less significant than Isaiah or Jeremiah or what have you. It's just that their messages are shorter. Their message is not as long. It doesn't have as many chapters as those other books. But I think what makes Amos a fascinating prophet to study is that he wasn't a prophet by trade or by education or by pedigree or any of those things. He didn't come from the highest of institutions where he learned how to be a prophet. He doesn't hail from the school of Elijah or Elisha. Actually, he comes from the fields. Amos is a a farmer. A herdsman, a shepherd. In fact, he says that if you flip over to Amos chapter 7 and look at 14, he says this. Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. That's where he comes from. From pastors in orchards, God called Amos to be a speaker, to be a prophet of his word. Which I'm sure, if you just put yourself in Amos' shoes, daunted him on more than one occasion. If you put yourself in Amos' position, you would clearly probably have this feeling that he had no business marching into the places that he marched into. The courts of dignitaries and kings of world leaders. And he was preaching a strong message that was aiming at pointing them back to Jehovah. He had no business being there. He was a farmer. Other than the fact that God had called him to do just that. God had called him. From those places of figs and sheep. And he called him to speak his truth. Notice again verse 15 of chapter 7. I was no prophet. But notice he says. But the Lord took me. From following the flock. And the Lord said to me. Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore hear the word of the Lord. What a great sort of little insight we get into Amos. I don't really have any other reason for being here other than the fact that God has called me. So guess what? You're going to listen to me. (laughs) That was sort of his mindset. And yet on top of all that though, this idea that he doesn't really belong and, and all the sorts of things that sort of question his calling but he's firm in what God has told him. He also had to deal with the fact that he was given a very unpopular message. If you read the book of Amos, it's largely a message of judgment, except for like the last handful of verses. It's a serious book, an ominous book. It always sort of has this sense of foreboding to it, which is so sort of opposite of the era in which Amos was alive and around and active. Amos was... A prophet to Israel when Israel was sort of at the heights of its prosperity and its flourishing. Yet in the midst of all that, he's called attention. He, he's called to draw attention to what? The fact that on the horizon, though you can't see it because you're partying too much, there is judgment coming for this very nation. That's essentially Amos' message. 
If you look at verse 1 of the very first chapter, Amos 1, verse 1, notice what he, what, how it begins. It says, The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, so again, he's referencing his sort of life before he was called to prophesy. Shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel, notice, in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Right away, we're given a wealth of insight and information onto what might have been or what was the, the social context and sort of the political climate of Amos's day. The kings that he mentions are so significant. Uzziah, and this is Jeroboam II. This is who that is. This puts us in the range, if you can recall from our days of studying the books of kings, this puts us in the range of 2 Kings 14 and 15. That's where Uzziah and Jeroboam II have their histories recounted for us. And what's really fascinating, you don't have to go there, but you can. If you go to 2 Kings 14 to 15, these two kings are only given seven verses each. Each of these kings, they get seven verses. Which is so curious, considering that both of these kings that are here are mentioned have the longest tenure on the throne out of all the kings of Judah and Israel. Uzziah, he reigned for 52 years. And Jeroboam II reigned for 41 years. Yet, we mentioned this when we went through Kings. It's so fascinating. The historian only gives them seven verses. All of those decades of achievement and accomplishment are sort of disregarded. And just a mere passing seven verses. Why? Well, I think it's mostly because of what Amos is leaning at here. Because for all of that history, they were pretty rotten. Let's focus on Jeroboam. For this is Jeroboam II. It's important to keep that in mind. But Jeroboam II, I think, is a significant figure. Primarily because he figures into this narrative that we have right in front of us. He pops up in chapter number 8. Or excuse me, chapter number 7. Go with me to Amos chapter 7 again. If you look at those verses, we were sort of hovering around. He appears here as the subject, the object of Amos' word of judgment along with Jeroboam II's priest, Amaziah. Notice it says verse 10. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile from his land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go flee away to the land of Judah, and eat bread there, and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son. But I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock. And the Lord said to me, go prophesy, uh, go prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel. And do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city. And your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword. And your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. 
And you yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go away into exile from its land. This is the word of the Lord from Amos to his king, King Jeroboam II. Which, I'm sure, if you just, again, put yourself in that room, these words must have sounded just like the delusions of a crazed lunatic madman from the hills, from the forest. What kind of figs have you been eating, Amos? Because you are kind of sounding off your rocker. All this talk of exile and devastation. These were things that were sort of unheard of. Under Jeroboam II, Israel was reaching a new height of significance and prominence and success. For the duration of Jeroboam II, Israel was brought back to the heights of sort of the achievement that it had, uh, had experienced all the way back under Solomon. So for hundreds of years, they were dealing with all kinds of economic upheaval. And under Jeroboam II, it's almost like the man was elected and things started thriving. Historical and archaeological findings have sort of confirmed that under Jeroboam II... That this was the most prosperous Israel had ever been since the kingdoms divided. Israel was booming. Israel was thriving. All of its financial and social and political and cultural spheres were blossoming. Everything was looking up. All of these things you could point to and say, look at what our king has done. Yet for all of that pomp and all that circumstance and all of that extravagance lied behind it a kingdom that was in decay. It was a kingdom that was essentially a corpse. But you couldn't tell. Because in the world's measure of success, Jeroboam's Israel was so successful. They were the cream of the crop. They were powerful. They were prosperous. In Amos' words, as he is this preacher coming in here, and he basically says, all of that means nothing. All of that means nothing because you are rotten to the core of your souls. That's sort of the point that he's trying to convey. All of your luxury, all of your lavishness, it means nothing. That's where we get to chapter number 8. If you notice in verse number one, notice what God shows him. So he has this moment where he's declaring this word to Amaziah the priest and to Jeroboam the second, the king. And then he continues and he's saying, this is what God showed me. Verse one, behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. Right away, these couple of verses give us sort of this subversion of expectation. Amos is relaying this vision that God showed him. And in this vision, he was shown a basket of summer fruit. And that basket of summer fruit was the sign that the end had come. Which again is just sort of all sorts of disconcerting. Summer is... Often regarded as the season of blessing. It's the time when we all get to go outside. It's the season of life and laugh and play and joy and a basket of summer fruit. Sitting there on a table is sort of emblematic of all of this divine favor and goodwill. Look at how good God is to us. Just think about your favorite summer fruit. Whatever it might be. Peaches or 
watermelons or whatever that is. I imagine probably, maybe you, maybe you have a negative emotion towards one of those fruits, but if you imagine eating and, and biting into an awesome, juicy peach, there's probably not of negative emotions that go along with that. Seasonal, the seasonal fruits of summer are almost always associated with times of laughter and leisure. And here God is saying, no, they should make you want to lament. He's totally twisting the narrative. They represented the end for God's people. You see, rather than be a sign of God's blessing, this basket of summer fruit was an omen of judgment for God's people. It was an indication that all of Israel's time had run out. The end had come. And like peaches that were finally ripe, so too was Israel ripe. Not for enjoyment, but for judgment. That's what he's conveying through Amos' words. That's what God tells his prophet. My patience for my people, it's been exhausted. And it's time now for summer to come to an end. It's time for the season of blessing to be over. And following it is going to be a winter of exile, a winter of devastation. And that's what's waiting in the wings for my people. That's the sense of foreboding that comes from Amos' words. A new dawn was coming for God's people. One which would see all of Israel thrown into disarray and into sure disaster. And Jeroboam couldn't see it. Again, because Israel was so prosperous at this time. We're given a hint of what this disaster looks like. Again, in verse number 3, if you, if you read it, notice he says, The songs of the temple. Shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. Silence. The songs that used to fill that temple with the praise and the worship of Yahweh were suddenly turned into nothing but the noises of pain and grief and anguish. That's what's coming, Amos says. And that's only the half of it. Look at verse number 7. As he continues to sort of clarify what this disaster is going to look like. Notice, the Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob. Surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account and everyone mourn who dwells in it? And all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt? And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. The full extent of what all God was having and was going to allow to come upon his people is here articulated. You could basically sum it up as sort of the reversal of all of Israel's fortunes. Israel was a thriving nation and God was going to decimate them. All of their feasts, they get turned into funerals. All of their days, they get made into night. All of their songs, they become wailings and weepings. All of those things that Israel had hung their hats on for all of their success were about to be exposed for what they truly were, just pitiful excuses for what only God could give them. 
And at the heart of all of this, you have to see and understand that all of these heated words, these words sound, whoa, they raise our eyebrows. At the heart of all of this was the devastating fact that this came after centuries of God pleading with his people and sending preachers to preach to his people. This was not some hasty, hurried thing that God sort of expedited. God wasn't delighting in the fact that he had to send this message. This prophecy comes after years of God patiently dealing with his people, Israel, with his beloved people. Sending them prophet after prophet, messenger after messenger with messages of judgment and yet the promise of mercy. And all of them were were given to them in the hopes that they would one day suddenly stir them to repent. That's God's heart. God does not delight in judgment. You'll never find a verse that says that, by the way. He delights in long-suffering and he abounds in love. And judgment is what happens when his people turn their backs on him for continued seasons. And that's what happens here. Because all those messages, they fall on deaf ears. And rather than listen to any of those litany of preachers that God had sent to them, Israel was plunging headlong into ruin. They were choosing, essentially, this end. And so much so now, to continue the metaphor, that like a basket of summer fruit, fruit, they were now ripe and ready for judgment. Which brings us, I think, to perhaps the most horrible part Of this whole prophecy that is here relayed by Amos. Namely that God was about to devastate his people with yet another famine. A famine that would decimate the economy of Israel. Except it wouldn't be a famine. It wouldn't be a drought of bread or water. Notice it's a famine of the hearing of the words of the Lord. Did you see that in verse 11? Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. The people of God, who should have been filled with the word of God, were going to become a parched people. Their souls, it was going to be a, the fallout of all of this judgment, was a famine of the soul. And to be sure, notice, you have to make sure you keep this sort of in your mind in this way to clarify. This does not mean that God's word was going to somehow lose power. Not at all. This famine is not in the word. It's a famine of the hearing of the word. The fault was not with what God had promised or revealed about himself in his holy scriptures. The fault was with his own people who had set their hearts on something or someone else. The word of God does not change. Psalm 119.89, his word is fixed firmly in the heavens. God's word, Hebrews 4, is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. That doesn't change. What had changed was the hearts of God's own people, the people of Israel. And from being a people who had, being a culture, being a nation, being an entire community of people centered around the Lord and what the word of the Lord says to them. Now they were a people that were plagued by rampant idolatry and iniquity and strife and sin. And they couldn't see 
all of that for all of their extravagance, for all of their riches, for all of their opulence. They were blinded by their own success. And here Amos is telling them, you are nothing but a corpse of a kingdom and God is coming to bury you. Notice verse 13, because this is, the, this is where we get an insight into that idolatry. Notice he says, In that day the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. Those who swear, notice, by the guilt of Samaria, which is sort of a euphemism for what has happened to Israel years and years prior. We're not going to go through kings again, but if you want some insight into this, 1 Kings 12, the kingdom divides the original Jeroboam, Jeroboam I, He starts to set up a new system of worship. And if you read that passage in 1 Kings 12, he starts to construct in Israel two golden bulls. And he puts one in Dan. You notice in verse 14 he references Dan and also Bethel, which is in Samaria. He puts the other one in Bethel. These two golden statues of bulls. And what does he say about them? 1 Kings 12, 28 Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. These two golden statues of bulls with horns. And he says, look, here are your gods. Worship them. That was the most critical turning point in all of Israel's history. As the God's people deliberately did an about face on God himself. Where now instead of worshiping God and serving the one true God. The one true deliverer who had brought them out of Exodus. They sprinted. They ran towards these other gods. Who were just made out of gold. Who were nothing but hunks of brass. And ever since... Israel was racked with perversion and corruption and violence and war and scandal and strife. You can read. Go from 1 Kings 12 and read to the end of Kings. Whenever it references Israel, wherever it references Samaria, it's always incredibly corrupt. And the point is this, that all of that. That decision and the constant decisions, the subsequent decisions to keep turning away from God, to keep turning away from his word, keep turning away from his truth. All of that, all of that was finally coming home to roost now. All of that rebellion was being dealt with here, you see. By this famine of hearing the words of the Lord, God was doing exactly what his people had claimed they wanted. He was giving his people what they had already chosen. Because it sounds harsh, doesn't it, that God's going to send a famine where people can't hear the words of the Lord. But they had already made that choice. You think you can find all the meaning that you want, all the hope that you crave, all the worth that you so desperately need? You think you can find all the purpose that I have for you in something else other than me? Okay, be my guest. That's God's words to these people. You think that these other gods can serve you better than me? Okay, try it. See how it works. 
You see, it was not God and his word that had gone silent. It was his people who had gone deaf. They had turned their backs on the one true God. And through the course of decades of defiance and turning away from him, they had grown callous. They were so unmoved. They were a people who were no longer affected by the words of God. Instead, their only focus was inward and their own self-interest. Look at verse number four. Notice how Amos points this out in very harsh fashion. Amos 8, 4. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? And the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great, and deal deceitfully with false balances, That we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. (laughs) See what's happening? They're dealing in deceitful business deals. (laughs) Trying to stuff their own pockets with all of the riches and all the profits that they can. And see here Amos is calling out all of these social elite that are within Israel including Jeroboam II. And he's calling them out. Because even while the feast of the new moon, which was a religious holiday that's mentioned in Numbers, and even while the Sabbath was going on, what are they thinking about? They're thinking about their businesses. They're thinking about getting back to making money. Getting back to ripping off people. Getting back to putting more things into their pockets. Even while they were observing the ritual of worship. Which should have been aligning their hearts to the words of God. And to God himself. Their minds were elsewhere. They couldn't wait for the service to be over. So they could get back to selling. When is this going to be done? Because I want to get back to what I was doing before. It's a people that were unmoved. Totally disaffected. By the words of God, they were bored with the words of the Lord. Outwardly, yeah, they might have been going through the motions of worship. You know, they're standing when they're supposed to. They're reciting things and blah, blah, blah. But inwardly, they were consumed with only the things that could benefit them. Their attitude towards the things of God had grown so flippant and frivolous. That worship was almost an inconvenience, which is seriously dangerous ground for the people of God. And here, God is essentially saying, okay, if that's what you want, I'm going to turn you over to what you say by your actions that you want. They could barely be bothered to focus on what was in front of them. I can't wait for this to be over, they were saying in their hearts. And I won't ask if you've ever thought that here. But how many of us are sometimes bodily present but are cognitively absent? How often do we sit in our favorite pew week in and week out listening to God's word without ever actually hearing the words that are being spoken to us? Israel did that for centuries and they essentially ripened themselves for judgment. Because God's word wasn't The word, it was just a number of things that was inconveniencing them on their way to make more profits. I ask myself, am I ripening myself for judgment by how I treat this word that's in front of me? Or am I on the verge of a famine of hearing the words of the Lord? Maybe it's here already. 
That's a serious place to be. And this is not a sudden thing. Again, just like Israel. It didn't happen overnight where suddenly they were not where God wanted them to be. It was a slow, gradual process that happened over centuries, that happened over decades. And for us, it's the same. Perhaps... Some crisis comes about, some event comes about, it pops up into your life, and it gets your mind, it gets your heart off of God and off of His Word. A season of frustration comes about. It leaves all of the things that you thought would happen in the ruins. All of your expectations are suddenly dashed, all your plans are suddenly altered, all your dreams are sort of left in the dust, and what you thought was going to happen didn't end up happening. Those sorts of things are sometimes the tremors of a looming famine, of hearing the words of the Lord. And the more that you focus on those things, the more that you feed those things, the more the word becomes dry. Worshiping suddenly doesn't move you like it did before. The gathering of God's people suddenly starts to become more of like a chore and not something that you delight in. And the folks in the pews next to you suddenly start to become a bother and a nuisance. This is, by the way, what leads to division in a church between like-minded believers. When discord seems more natural to you than praise, you've become bored with the word of God. And famine is on the horizon. And it's not a famine of the word, it's a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. And it starts with a distraction. It starts with a disappointment. And that disappointment festers into boredom. And it culminates into dissension and disarray. And what often results is you begin looking elsewhere. Where? For what only God can give you. As he says in verse 12. And they shall wander from sea to sea. And from north to east. And they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord. But they shall not find it. The common refrain is, I'm not hearing from God anymore. But it's not God who's gone silent. It's not God and his word that's changed. It's we who've become deaf, become bored. If you're bored with the word, the famine has arrived. When your heart and your mind start to become more preoccupied with what you're going to do after church is over, the famine has arrived. And I think this attitude is rampant within so many churches around this country. Folks nowadays can hardly be bothered to sit in church more than once a week. And when they do show up, they want things to be done in the ways that they want it to be done. They've got to make sure the service is exciting. It's got to be really moving. All the music has to fit everyone's preferences. You've got to make sure the preaching isn't too long. And when those considerations are what driving how we plan and how we do worship, you can be sure that a flippancy is being developed and being fostered for what happens in the church. Flippancy plus boredom equals famine. When the word becomes something that you can casually throw off, when the word becomes something that doesn't move you, the famine of the hearing of the words has arrived. And to me, it's reminiscent you don't have to go there, but I'll read it. And of what Paul talks about in 2 Timothy 4. 2 Timothy 4, 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. 
Folks having itching ears and a famine of hearing the word are the two heads of a monster that's wreaking havoc on Christ's church. And I think what's happening is it leaves people who would be disciples feeling utterly displaced. I think when I look, when I look, I, I, I shouldn't do this. I get onto those blogs and onto those, those, those news outlets about how all these churches are doing some crazy things. And I shouldn't look at them because it just gets me somewhat frustrated. But I, I can't help it. It's like reading, you know, the, the gossip page for the church. I shouldn't read those things. But I hear about what these other guys are preaching. About what these other churches are promoting. And I know I've been harping on this passage and other things. And I'm so burdened for the church. Because I think we're making a generation of spiritual nomads. And they don't know where to search. Because they've never been shown how awesome and how life-giving the word is. So now... People are searching to and fro for what only God delights to give. But they've never been able to see it. Our churches, I think, are filled with famished people. Starved people. Distracted people. Not only because we've ignored what God's word says. Because we've lost sight of who it reveals. I've said it. I'll say it till I die, I hope. This word is not about you. It's not. It's not. This word is a a 66 book revelation of how God, the creator who spoke everything into existence with the vapor from his mouth, that guy came and died for you. Taking all of your rebellion, all of your sin, all of your strife, all those times that you've said foul words and you've put people, uh, put people down and you've turned your back on all the people around. He takes all of that sin, all of that strife on himself and he buries it in the grave. And he leaves it behind when he walks out three days later. Proving the fact that he is not only man, but he is God in the flesh. That's what this book is about. Every single page. You know what gets me so excited when I read the word? Is the fact that this thing is all about leading me to a redeemer. Leading me to the person who is life and who imparts life. And every single Sunday I pray, God, help me to communicate that. How can you be bored with that? The church service is not about you either. This gathering that we do on a weekly basis, on Sundays, is not about you and how you can be made to feel better and about how you can be served. This gathering of the church is first and foremost about him. It's about how God can be glorified, how God can be exalted as the one true creator, the one true governor, and the one true redeemer of all things. That's what it's about. And on Sundays, when we worship, it's less about what it does for us and what, about it, and what it says about him. What it says about that type of God. 
Ours is a God who is sovereignly determined. Can you imagine this? He has chosen from before the foundation of the world that, yes, he would glorify how holy he is by saving unholy people. That's the... A mind-blowing fact of the gospel that when we sinned in our first parents, Adam and Eve, he didn't just vaporize everything and try and redo it again. Instead, what happens? He takes the opportunity of sin and shows you, this is how holy I am, that I can even save unholy people by taking their unholiness on myself. You want to talk about something that's life-giving, that's it. And that's what this word is about. It's a gift from God to us. And through this word, you know what's revealed? It's revealed that the truest and the ultimate gift that God has given us is himself. That's what God's word shows us. It shows us that his posture towards you and towards me is not one of a pointed finger and said, you better get things right. You know what God's posture is towards us? It's open arms. Come, seek me. Come to me. Come return to me. When we read the prophets, when we read these words of Amos and we hear how harsh we is, how harsh God is, is seeming, that's what we can think. We think of an old grumpy grandfather pointing his finger at his kids. That's not God. Because behind this outward message of judgment is coming. God is saying, come seek me. Come, come return to me. That's what God's word is. It's a welcome for you and for me, for sorry, rotten sinners. And it's a welcome for us to have a share in God's story of redemption. It's a book about how all these things that are dead and trespasses and sins can be raised to life again. That's what this word is. It's a word of life. It's a word of resurrection. We're going to celebrate next week. Who can be bored with that? And just like Israel, you see, they were given a remedy out of this famine. This famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Listen to these words. If, if you want to see the heart of God, Amos 5 verse 4. In the midst of all of this devastation, listen to what he says. For thus says the house of the Lord, seek me and live. Verse number 6, seek the Lord and live. The way of escape for Israel and for us is an invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's the invitation of the word, my friends. Every time we come here, that's, that's my posture. That's my standing. I just want to be a channel through whom God's invitation is given to you. That you try as you might. You can try as you can to find things in your life elsewhere other than God that can fill you. That can satisfy you. And I'm here to tell you, it won't work. 
And a way better invitation has already been given to you in God himself and his own son coming and saying to each and every one of us, come to me and I will give you the rest that you seek. I will provide the purpose that you so long for and I will show you how much you're worth because I'll take your sins on the cross and die for them. I will show you how much you mean to me. That's God's words invitation. I pray beyond anything that if you feel yourself, there's something that's popped up in your life and you, and you feel as though, man, I'm not moved. I'm not saying you have to cry every time you sing. But does God's word grip you? When you sing that song about how God is rich in mercy, but God, he came in and he saved us from trespasses and sins. Does that grip your soul? Or are you thinking about your your lunch plans? Thinking about how you wish wish you could be outside because it's so nice outside. The word of God grips us. Man, it grips me this morning. I'm telling you, this is not some gimmick. This is not a fad. This is not just a charade. I'm not trying to share platitudes with you. I'm sharing this because this is God's word. It's a word of life and it's raising sinners to life. You know what's going to bring out revival? We pray for revival. We hear about revival. And we pray, God, bring revival here. It starts with a collection of people not being bored with what God's word says. And they actually see it and they read it. And they say, this thing is living and is active. Every revival, I've said this before and I I don't mean to re-preach that. Every revival, you know how it starts? With a people seeing that the word imparts life. You can go all the way back into Kings. All the way back into Nehemiah. We don't have to worry about the Great Awakening or the Second Great Awakening. Or all those revivals that we're familiar with. All the revivals that you find in the word. They start with the word. My prayer for this church. My prayer for myself. Is that I won't become flippant. I won't become bored with what God's word says. Instead, we'll see it as the invitation to be made new because of what Christ has done. That's the good news. The good news is that the word raises us to life by showing us the one who has taken your death. Praise be to God. The famine of the word is dispelled by the faithfulness of God who speaks through his word to us fickle, frail, faithless human beings. (laughs) And despite all that, he is good. And he says, seek me and live. May we seek that God this morning. Let us pray.